0: Chapter Twelve of Strange Pages from Family Papers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. Chapter Twelve of Strange Pages from Family Papers by T. F. Thistleton Dyer. Romance of Disguise. Pisanio to Imogen. YOU MUST FORGET TO BE A WOMAN, CHANGE COMMAND INTO OBEDIENCE, FEAR AND NICENESS, THE handmaids OF ALL WOMEN, OR MORE TRULY, WOMAN, ITS PRETTY SELF, INTO A WAGGISH COURAGE, READY IN GIBES, QUICK-ANSWERED, SAUCY AND AS QUARRELSOME AS THE WEASEL, NAY, YOU MUST FORGET THAT RAREST TREASURE OF YOUR CHEEK, EXPOSING IT, BUT, OH, THE HARDER HEART, Alack no remedy To the greedy touch of common-kissing titan, And forget your laboursome and dainty trims. Cymbeline, Act Three, Scene Four.
1: That a woman, under any circumstances, Should dismiss her proper apparel, it has been remarked, May well appear to us as something like a phenomenon. Yet instances are far from uncommon the motive being originated in a variety of circumstances. A young lady, it may be, falls in love, and, to gain her end, assumes male attire so that she may escape detection, as in the case of a girl who, giving her affections to a sailor, and not being able to follow him in her natural and recognized character, put on jacket and trousers, and became, to all appearance, a brother of his mess. In other cases a pure masculinity of character, seems to lead women to take on the guise of men, apparently feeling themselves misplaced in and misrepresented by the female dress. They take up with that of men, simply that they may be allowed to employ themselves in those manly avocations, for which their taste and nature are fitted. In Caulfield's Portraits of Remarkable Persons, we find a portrait of Anne Mills, styled the female sailor, who is represented as standing on what appears to be the end of a pier, and holding in one hand a human head, while the other bears a sword, the instrument doubtless with which the decapitation was effected. In the year 1740 she was serving on board the Maidstone, a frigate, and in an action between that vessel and the enemy she exhibited such desperate and daring valour as to be particularly noticed by the whole crew, but her motives for assuming the male habit do not seem to have
2: transpired. A far more exciting career was that of Marianne Talbot the youngest of sixteen illegitimate children, whom her mother bore to one of the heads of the noble house of Talbot. She was born on February second, 1778, and educated under the eye of a married sister, at whose death she was committed to the care of a gentleman named Sucker, who treated her with great severity, and who appeared to have taken advantage of her friendless situation in order to transfer her, for the vilest of purposes, to the hands of Captain Bowen, whom he directed her to look upon as a future guardian. Although barely fourteen years old, Captain Bowen made his mistress, and on being ordered to join the regiment at St. Domingo, he compelled the girl to go with him in the disguise of a footboy and under the name of John Taylor. But Captain Bowen had scarcely reached St. Domingo, when he was remanded with his regiment to Europe, to join the Duke of York's Flanders expedition. At this time she was made to enrol herself as a drummer in the corps. She was in several skirmishes, being wounded once by a ball which struck one of her ribs, and another time by a sabre-stroke on the side. At Valenciennes, however, Captain Bowen was killed, and finding among his effects several letters relating to herself, which proved that she had been cruelly defrauded of money left to her, she resolved to leave the regiment, and to return, if possible, to England. Accordingly she set out attired as a sailor-boy, and eventually hired herself to the commander of a French lugger, which turned out to be a privateer. But when the vessel fell in with some of Lord Howe's vessels in the channel, she refused to fight against her countrymen, notwithstanding all the blows and menaces the French captain could use. The privateer was taken, and our heroine was carried before Lord Howe, to whom she told candidly all that had happened to her, keeping her sex a secret. Marianne Talbot, or John Taylor, was next placed on board the Brunswick, where she witnessed Lord Howe's great victory of the first June, and was actively engaged in it but she was seriously wounded, her left leg being struck a little above the knee by a musket-ball, and broken, and severely smashed lower down by a grape-shot. On reaching England she was conveyed to Haslar Hospital, where she remained four months, no suspicion having ever been entertained of her being a woman. But she was no sooner out of the hospital than retaining her disguise, she entered a small man-of-war, the Vesuvius, which was captured by two French ships, when she was sent to the prisons of Dunkirk. Here she was incarcerated for eighteen months, but having been discovered planning an escape with a young midshipman, was confined in a pitch-dark dungeon for eleven weeks on a diet of bread and water. An exchange of prisoners set her at liberty, and hearing accidentally an American merchant captain inquiring in the streets of Dunkirk for a lad to go to New York as ship steward, she offered her services and was accepted. Accordingly, in August 1796 she sailed with Captain Field, and on arriving at rhode island she resided with the captain's family but here another kind of adventure was to befall her for a niece of captain fields fell deeply in love with her even going so far as to propose marriage on leaving rhode island the young lady had such alarming fits that after sailing two miles marianne talbot was called back by a boat and compelled to promise a speedy return to the enamoured young lady on reaching england she was one day on shore with some of her comrades when she was seized by a press-gang, and finding there was no other way of getting off than by revealing her sex, she did so, her story creating a great sensation. From this time she never went to sea again, and soon afterwards lived in service with a bookseller, Mr. Kirby, who wrote her memoir.
3: And the late Colonel Fred Burnaby has recorded the history of a singular case... The facts of which came under his notice when he was with Don Carlos during the Carlist rising of the year 1874. A discovery was made a few days ago that a woman was serving in the Royalists' ranks, dressed in a soldier's uniform. She was found out in the following manner. The priest of the village to where she belonged, happening to pass through a town where the regiment was quartered, and chancing to see her, "'was struck by the likeness she bore to one of his parishioners. "'You must be Andalicia Bravo,' he remarked.
4: "'No, I am her brother,'
3: was the reply. "'The cure's suspicions were aroused, "'and at his suggestion an inquiry was made "'when it was discovered that the youthful soldier "'had no right to the masculine vestment she wore. "'Don Carlos, who was told of the affair, desired that she should be sent as a nurse to the hospital of durango and when he visited the establishment presented the fair amazon with a military cross of merit the poor girl was delighted with the decoration and besought the king to allow her to return to the regiment as she said she was more accustomed to inflicting wounds than to healing them in fact she so implored to be permitted to serve once more as a soldier that at last Don Carlos, to extricate himself from the difficulties, said, No, I cannot allow you to join a regiment of men, but when I form a battalion of women, I promise upon my honour that you shall be named the colonel.
4: It will never happen,
3: said the girl, and she burst into tears as the king left the hospital.
0: At Haddon Hall may still be seen Dorothy Vernon's door whence the heiress of Haddon stole out one moonlight night to join her lover. The story generally told is that while her elder sister, the affianced bride of Sir Thomas Stanley, second son of the Earl of Derby, was made much of in her recognised attachment, Dorothy on the other hand was not only kept in the background, but every obstacle was thrown in her way against the connection she had formed with John Manners, son of the Earl of Rutland. But something of the wild bird, it is said, was noticed in Dorothy, and she was closely watched, kept almost a prisoner, and could only beat her wings against the bars that confined her. This kind of surveillance went on for some time, but did not check the young lady's infatuation for her lover, and it was not long before the young couple contrived to see one another. Disguised as a woodman. John Manners lurked, of a day, in the woods round Haddon for several weeks, obtaining now and then a stolen glance, a hurried word, or a pressure of the hand from the fair Dorothy. At length, however, an opportunity arrived which enabled Dorothy to carry out the plan which had been suggested to her by John Manners. It so happened that a grand ball was given at Haddon Hall to celebrate the approaching marriage of the elder daughter. And, whilst the throng of guests filled the ballroom, where the stringed minstrels played old dances in the minstrels' gallery and the horns blew low, every one being too busy with his own interests and pleasures to attend to those of another, the young Miss Dorothy stole away unobserved from the ballroom, passed out of the door, which is now one of the most interesting parts of this historic pile of buildings, and crossed the terrace to where, at the ladies' steps, She could dimly discern figures hiding in the shadow of the trees. Another moment, and she was in her lover's arms. Horses were waiting, and Dorothy was soon riding away with her lover through the moonlight, and was married on the following morning. This story, which has been gracefully told by Eliza Metayard under the title of The Love Steps of Dorothy Vernon, has always been regarded as one of the most romantic and pleasant episodes in the history of Haddon Hall, through dorothy's marriage the estate of haddon passed from the family of vernon to that of Manners, and a branch of the house of rutland was transferred to the county of derby
5: but love has always been an inducement in one form or another for disguise and a romantic story is told of sir john boll of thorpe hall in lincolnshire who distinguished himself at cadiz in the year fifteen ninety six Among the prisoners taken at this memorable siege was a fair captive of great beauty, high rank, and immense wealth, and who was the peculiar charge of Sir John Ball. She soon became deeply enamoured of her gallant captor, and in his courteous company was all her joy, her infatuation being so great that she entreated him to allow her to accompany him to England, disguised as his page." But Sir John had a wife at home, and replied, to quote the version of the story given in Dr. Percy's Relics of Ancient English Poetry, "'Courteous lady, leave this fancy. Here comes all that breeds the strife. I in England have already a sweet woman to my wife. I will not falsify my vow for gold or gain, nor yet for all the fairest dames that live in Spain.' Thereupon the fair lady determined to retire to a convent, admiring the gallant soldier all the more for his faithful devotion to his wife.
2: Oh, happy is that woman that enjoys so true a friend! Many happy days, God send her, of my suit I make an end. On my knees I pardon crave for my offence, which did from love and true affection first commence. I will spend my days in prayer, love and all her laws defy. In a nunnery will I shroud me, far from any company. But ere my prayers have an end, be sure of this, To pray for thee and for thy love I will not miss.
5: But before forsaking the world, She transmitted to her unconscious rival in England Her jewels and valuable knick-knacks, Including her own portrait drawn in green, A circumstance which obtained for the original The designation of the Green Lady, and Thorpe Hall has long been said to be haunted by the lady in green, who has been in the habit of appearing beneath a particular tree close to the mansion.
4: A story which has been gracefully told in one of Moore's Irish melodies relates to Henry Cecil, Earl of Exeter, who, early in life, fell in love with the rich heiress of the Vernons of Hanbury. A marriage was eventually arranged, but this union proved a complete failure, and terminated in a divorce. Thereupon young Cecil, distrustful of the conventionalities of society, and to prevent any one of the fair sex marrying him on account of his position, resolved,
5: on laying aside the artificial attractions of his rank, and seeking some country maiden who would wed him from disinterested motives of affection.
4: Accordingly he took up his abode at a small inn in a retired Shropshire village, "'but even here his movements created suspicion. "'Some maintaining that he was connected with smugglers or gamesters, "'while all agreed that dishonesty or fraud "'was the cause of the mystery of the London gentleman's proceedings. "'Annoyed at the rude molestations to which he was daily, more or less, exposed, "'he quitted the inn, and removed to a farmhouse in the neighbourhood, "'where he remained for two years, "'in the course of which time he purchased some land, "'and commenced building himself a house.' but the landlord of the cottage where he lived had a beautiful daughter of about seventeen years, to whom young Cecil became so deeply attached that, in spite of her humble birth and simple education, he resolved to make her his wife, taking an early opportunity of informing her parents of his resolve. The matter came as a surprise to the farmer and his wife, and all the more so because they had always regarded Mr. Cecil as far too grand a person to entertain such an idea. "'Marry our daughter?' exclaimed the good wife in amazement. What? To a fine gentleman? No, indeed.
0: Yes, marry her,
4: added the husband.
0: He shall marry her, for she likes him. Has he not house and land too, and plenty
4: of money to keep her? So the rustic beauty was married, and it was not long afterwards that her husband found it necessary to repair to town on account of the Earl of Exeter's death. Setting out, as the young bride thought, on a pleasure trip, They stopped in the course of their journey at several noblemen's seats, where, to her astonishment, Cecil was welcomed to the most friendly manner. At last they reached Burley, in Northamptonshire, the home of the Cecils, and, on driving up to the house, Cecil unconcernedly asked his wife
5: whether she would like to be at home there.
2: Oh, yes! she excitedly exclaimed. It is indeed a lovely spot, exceeding all I have seen, and making me almost envy its possessor then said the young earl
5: it is yours
2: the whole affair
4: seemed like a fairy tale to the bewildered girl and who but herself could describe the feelings she experienced at the acclamations of joy and welcome which awaited her in her magnificent home but it was no dream and as soon as the young earl had arranged his affairs he returned to shropshire threw of his disguise and revealed his rank to his wife's parents assigning to them the house he had built, with a settlement of seven hundred pounds per annum. But, writes Sir Bernard Burke, if reports speak truly, the narrative must have a melancholy end. Her ladyship, unaccustomed to the exalted sphere in which she moved, chilled by its formalities, and depressed in her own esteem, survived only a few years her extraordinary elevation, and sank into an early grave, although Moore has given a brighter picture of this sad close to a pretty romance
5: you remember ellen our hamlet's pride how meekly she blessed her humble lot when the stranger william had made her his bride and love was the light of their lowly cot together they toiled through wind and rain till william at length in sadness said we must seek our fortunes on other plains then sighing she left her lowly shed they roamed a long and weary way Nor much was the maiden's heart at ease When now at close of one stormy day They see a proud castle among the trees. To night, said the youth, we'll shelter there. The wind blows cold, the hour is late. So he blew the horn with a chieftain's air, And the porter bowed as they passed the gate. Now welcome, lady, exclaimed the youth, This castle is thine, and these dark woods all. She believed him wild, but his words were truth, for Ellen is Lady of Rosner Hall, and dearly the Lord of Rosner loves what William the stranger wooed and wed, and the light of bliss in those lordly groves is pure as it shone in the lowly shed.
6: And one of the most extraordinary instances of disguise was that of the Chevalier D'An, who was born in the year 1728 and was an excellent scholar, soldier, and political intriguer. In the service of Louis the Fifteenth, he went to Russia in female attire, obtained employment as the female reader to the Tsarina Elizabeth, under which disguise he carried on political and semi political negotiations with wonderful success. In the year seventeen sixty two, he appeared in England as secretary of the embassy to the Duke of Nivernois, and when Louis the Sixteenth granted him a pension, and he went over to Versailles to return thanks for the favor, Marie-Antoinette is said to have insisted on his assuming women's attire. Accordingly, to gratify this foolish whim, Dayon is reported to have one day swept into the royal presence attired like a duchess, which character he supported to the great delight of the royal spectators. In the year 1794 he returned to this country, and being here after the revolution was accomplished, his name was placed in the fatal list of emigres, and he was deprived of his pension. The English Government, however, gave him an allowance of two hundred pounds a year, and in his old days he turned his fencing capabilities to account, for he occasionally appeared in matches with the Chevalier de saint George, and permanently reassumed female attire. This eccentric character was the subject of much speculation in his lifetime, and, curious to say, in the year seventeen seventy one it was proved to the satisfaction of a jury, on a trial before Lord Chief Justice Mansfield, that the Chevalier was of the female sex. The case in question arose from a wager between Hayes, a surgeon, and Jack, an underwriter, the latter having bound himself on receiving a premium, to pay the former a certain sum, whenever the fact was established that Dion was a woman. One of the witnesses was Morand, an infamous Frenchman, who gave such testimony that no human being could doubt the fact of Dion being of the female sex, and the two French medical men gave equally conclusive evidence. The result of this absurd trial was that the jury returned a verdict for the plaintiff with seven hundred and two pounds damages, but all doubt was cleared away when Dion died in the year eighteen ten for an examination of the body being made. It was publicly declared that the Chevalier was an old man. Walpole collected some facts about this remarkable man and writes the Du de Choiseul believed it was a woman after the death of Louis the Fifteenth. D'Eon had leave to go to France, on which the young Comte de Guerschi went to Monsieur de Vergennes, Secretary of State, and gave him notice that the moment D'Eon landed at Calais, he, Guerschi, would cut his throat, or D'Eon should his, on which Vergennes told the Count that D'Eon was certainly a woman. Louis the fifteenth corresponded with D'Eon, and when the Duc de Choiseul had sent a vessel which lay six months in the Thames to trepan and bring off D'Eon, the King wrote a letter with his own hand to give him warning of the vessel.
3: Like the Chevalier d'Eon, a certain individual named Russell, a native of Streatham, adopted the guise and habits of the opposite sex, and so skilfully did he keep up the deception that it was not known till after his death. It appears from Streatham Register that he was buried on April fourteenth, 1772, the subjoined memorandum being affixed to the entry, This person was always known under the guise or habit of a woman, and answered to the name of Elizabeth, as registered in this parish, November 21, 1669, but on death proved to be a man. It also appears from the registers of Streatham Parish that his father, John Russell, had three daughters and two sons. William, born in 1668, and Thomas in 1672, and there is very little doubt that the above person, who was also commonly known as Betsy the Doctress, was one of these sons. It is said that when he assumed the garb of the softer sex, he also took the name of his sister Elizabeth, who very likely either died in infancy or settled at a distance but under this name he applied, about two years before his death, for a certificate of his baptism. Early in life he associated with the gypsies, and became the companion of the famous Bamfield Moor Carew. Later on in life he resided at Chipstead in Kent, and there catered for the miscellaneous wants of the villagers. He also visited most parts of the continent as a stroller and a vagabond, and sometimes in the company of a man who passed for his husband, he moved about from one place to another, changing his maiden name to that of his companion, at whose death he passed as his widow, being generally known by the familiar name of Bet Page. According to license, in the course of his wanderings he attached himself to itinerant quacks, learned their remedies, practiced their calling, His knowledge, coupled with his great experience, gaining for him the reputation of being a most infallible doctress. He also went in for astrology, and made a considerable sum of money, but was so extravagant that when he died his worldly goods were not valued at half a sovereign. About a year before his death he returned to his native parish, his great age bringing him into much notoriety but his death was very sudden, and great was the surprise on all sides when it became known that he was a man. In life this strange character was a general favourite, and Mr. Thrale was wont to have him in his kitchen at Streatham Park, while Dr. Johnson, who considered him a shrewd person, held long conversations with him to prevent the discovery of his sex he used to wear a cloth tied under his chin and a large pair of nippers found in his pocket after death are supposed to have been the instruments with which he was in the habit of removing the tell-tale hairs from his face
5: in some instances as in times of political intrigue and commotion disguise has been resorted to as a means of escape and concealment of personal identity one of the most romantic and remarkable cases on record being that of Lord Clifford, popularly known as the Shepherd Lad. It appears that Lady Clifford, apprehensive lest the life of her son, seven years of age, might be sacrificed in vengeance for the blood of the youthful Earl of Rutland, whom Lord Clifford had murdered in cold blood at the termination of the Battle of Sandal, placed him in the keeping of a shepherd who had married one of her inferior servants an attendant on the boy's nurse. His name and parentage laid aside, the young boy was brought up among the moors and hills as one of the shepherd's own children. On reaching the age of fourteen a rumour somehow spread to the court that the son of the black-faced Clifford, as his father had been called, was living in concealment in Yorkshire, his mother, naturally alarmed, had the boy immediately removed to the vicinity of the village of Threlkeld amidst the Cumberland hills, where she had sometimes the opportunity of seeing him. But, strange to say, it is doubtful whether Lady Clifford made known her relationship to him, or whether, indeed, the shepherd lord had any distinct idea of his lofty lineage. It is generally supposed, however, that there was a complete separation between mother and child. A tradition which was accepted by wordsworth with whom the story of the shepherd boy was an especial favourite in his song at the feast of brown castle the poet thus prettily describes the shepherd boy's curious career
0: now who is he that bounds with joy on Carrack's side a shepherd boy no thought hath he but thoughts that pass light as the wind along the grass can this be he who hither came In secret, like a smothered flame? Or whom such thankful tears were shed For shelter and a poor man's bread? God loves the child, And God hath willed That those dear words should be fulfilled. The lady's words, when forced away, The last she to her babe did say, My own, my own, thy fellow guest, I may not be, but rest thee, rest for lowly shepherd's life is best
1: many items of traditionary lore still linger about the cumberland hills respecting the young lord who grew up as hardy as the heath on which he vegetated and as ignorant as the rude herds which bounded over it but the following description of young clifford in his disguise and of his employment as given by wordsworth probably gives the most reliable traditionary account respecting him That prevailed in a district where he spent his lonely youth.
0: His garb is humble, ne'er was seen such garb with such a noble mien. Among the shepherd-grooms no mate hath he, a child of strength and state, Yet lacks not friends for solemn glee and a cheerful company, That learned of him submissive ways, and comforted his private days. To his side the fallow deer came, and rested without fear. The eagle, lord of land and sea, stooped down to pay him fealty. And both the undying fish that swim through bowscale tarn did wait on him. The pair were servants to his eye in their immortality. They moved about in open sight to and fro for his delight. He knew the rocks which angels haunt on the mountain's visitant. He hath kenned them taking wing, And the caves where fairies sing, He hath entered, And been told by voices How men lived of old.
4: But one of the first acts of Henry Seventh On his ascension to the throne, Was to restore young Clifford to his birthright, And to all the possessions that his distinguished sire had won. There are few authentic facts, however, recorded concerning him, for it seems that as soon as he had emerged from the hiding-place, where he had been brought up in ignorance of his rank, finding himself more illiterate than was usual, even in an illiterate age, he retired to a tower, which he built up in a beautiful and sequestered forest, where, under the direction of the monks of Bolton Abbey, he gave himself up to the forbidden studies of alchemy and astrology. His descendant, Anne Clifford, Countess of Pembroke, describes him as, a plain man who lived for the most part a country life, and came seldom either to court or London, excepting when called to Parliament, on which occasion he behaved himself like a wise and good English nobleman. He was twice married, and was succeeded by his son, called Wild Henry Clifford, from the irregularities of his youth.
5: And we may cite the case of Matthew Hale, who on one occasion was instrumental to justice being done through himself appearing in disguise and supporting the wronged party. It is related that the younger of two brothers had endeavoured to deprive the elder of an estate of five hundred pounds a year by suborning witnesses to declare that he died in a foreign land, but appearing in court in the disguise of a miller, Sir Matthew Hale was chosen the twelfth juryman to sit on this cause. As soon as the clerk of the juryman had sworn in the juryman, a short, dexterous fellow came into their apartment and slipped ten gold pieces into the hands of eleven of the jury, giving the miller only five, while the judge was generally supposed to be bribed with a large sum. At the conclusion of the case the judge summed up the evidence in favour of the younger brother, and the jury were about to give their verdict, when the supposed miller stood up and addressed the court. To the surprise of all present he spoke with energetic and manly eloquence, unravelled the sophistry to the very bottom, proved the fact of bribery, showed the elder brother's title to the estate from the contradictory evidence of the witnesses, and, in short, he gained a complete victory in favour of truth and justice. End of chapter 12